Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I know I always say this, but on today's program, we've got a lot of in-depth reporting from you with our broadcast partners, and I am very excited about having Dr. Andy Woods on the program today. Jimmy, that's right. Dr. Woods is gracious enough to give us an extended in-depth interview today, and we're going to talk about some very interesting subjects concerning Bible prophecy. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. Dr. Woods is very respected, really worldwide, and I'm looking forward to him being on the program today. We do have a lot of late-breaking news, in-depth items from Israel, so let's get ready with our first interview, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman on the line with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst with a wide and vast array of experience. He's got a website, KenTimmerman.com. You can go there to find out more about him and sign up for his newsletter. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, Ken, we've got a lot to get to today, but let's start with China, and we are China Watchers on this program, and there's some very uh, concerning developments in their nuclear program. The U.S., Rick, has been talking about this quite publicly. U.S. military leaders over the past six months, a dramatic buildup in China's military nuclear programs. They are uh, in the process of quadrupling the number of strategic warheads. And uh, in March, uh, independent groups, non-government groups here in the U.S. discovered three new missile fields with as many as 300 separate silos. Now, those silos, they believed, have been built for DF-41 missiles. These are strategic missiles. They have a 9,000-plus mile range, meaning they can reach anywhere in the continental U.S. And each one of those missiles, each one of those 300 silo missiles could have 10 warheads on it. So you're talking about as many as 3,000 warheads potentially in China. We have an arsenal of just over 4,000 warheads. So the Chinese are clearly building up to be in a position to have a first strike arsenal, to have a nuclear weapons capability that would essentially tell the United States or any other adversary, don't touch us when we go to Taiwan or don't touch us when we do this. Don't touch us when we go into some other part of the world, such as Cuba, because we have the capability of launching a first strike nuclear war against you. This is a huge development. Our military leaders have testified publicly in Congress. They think it's stupefying. It is uh, the most disturbing development that they have seen in their professional lives. This is what they've been telling Congress. Uh, So I think this is something we really need to keep our eyes on. Well, and looking at that report, it looks like they have a willingness to use these in an offensive manner, not just a defensive manner. Well, and I think that's the point. The Chinese see nuclear weapons as a first strike capability, as a warning, first of all, a deterrent, a deterrent to a potential adversary such as the United States. Don't touch us. Don't hinder us. Don't block our efforts to take Taiwan because you could lose New York, uh, Seattle and Detroit. Uh, So, yeah, they are offensive weapons. But now we see them, Rick, doing something that the Soviets did uh, in the early 1960s. In the past couple of weeks, when there's been a a flurry of visits back and forth between Cuba and China, the Chinese have sent top officials to Cuba. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that they have uh, come to an agreement to have a joint military training facility in Cuba with the Chinese. Uh, We could see them very, very soon uh, having uh, missile bases in Cuba, just as the Soviets did in the 1960s. One thing we know already uh, is that they've already moved into Lourdes, 
which is the old Soviet listening base, the intelligence base just outside of Havana. There are two other listening bases there, too, that the Chinese have taken over. So they are now in a position just 95 miles off of Key West to be able to scoop up intelligence from inside the United States to basically intercept emails, to block websites. They would have very easy access to military websites. Now, they can get them from anywhere in the world, but it just puts them in a closer proximity to the United States to conduct uh, cyber uh, intelligence warfare against America. And I think this relationship, China and Cuba, uh, is something also that is going to be developing and becoming more important uh, in the coming years. Well, Ken, I know you've talked about this before, and we even talked about it last week. China's developing nuclear program, and it just gets more alarming and seems to be progressing in a way that should be concerning to all of us as Americans. Well, we'll move away from that situation, and let's go to the Ukrainian crisis. Now, I know that you are at your home in France right now, so it looks like France is taking a tack that may be different from the rest of uh, Europe when they talk about trying to get Ukraine into NATO. When French leaders are feeling very small and very neglected, they tend to do things desperately different. Uh, they want to distinguish themselves from other NATO leaders, from other European leaders, because they aren't really very much different from them. Uh, and so here you have Macron, uh, the 43-year-old boy president, uh, who started off the war thinking that Russia was really not such a big threat and uh, you shouldn't really worry about Russia and, and Ukraine is half Russian anyway. And so now he's saying we should push faster to bring Ukraine into NATO. Uh, he even has the German chancellor going up against him who, who said just recently, uh, Schultz, he said just recently, Ukraine can't possibly join NATO now because they are a country in the middle of a war with a border conflict. And we do not want to bring an active border conflict with Russia into NATO because that puts all of us at risk of war. So Macron is just trying to be desperately different. I don't think he's going to get anywhere with this. There's a lot of pushback in NATO to bring in Ukraine in because of the dangers of bringing Ukraine into NATO. It's clearly a red line for Russia. Putin has been telling us that for 15 years. And then there's the fact that there's a war in Ukraine today. So if Ukraine were to join NATO, we would be immediately at war with Russia. It does kind of seem like Macron has not thought about the consequences of this decision. We'll see how that plays out. Well, let's look at the Russia side of that situation. And there is quite a bit of infighting among Putin's top generals. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, you know, we have talked a couple of times about Yevgeny Prigozhin. He is the uh, head of the private military contractor, the Wagner Group. He used to be called uh, Putin's chef because he had catering contracts with the, with the Kremlin. Uh, but he has become a very powerful person. He has a private army of over 30,000 men in Ukraine today and more in Syria and around the world. And he has become increasingly angry with the military, not with Putin himself, but with the Russian generals, with Gerasimov, the chief of staff, and, and the generals who were running the war in Ukraine. And he's accused them of not providing ammunition, of not providing gasoline, of not providing uh, supplies. At one point, he even said that the Russian army had mined a road that his troops were preparing to advance along and they were going to blow up his troops. So he has been increasingly combative in public statements, some of them pretty obscenity-laced comments about these military leaders, calling them all kinds of names. And for now, the interesting thing, Rick, is that there's been no pushback. There's been no pushback from the military, and there's been no pushback from Putin. 
Some people are wondering whether Prigozhin is trying to position himself as an ultimate replacement for Putin. I'm not certain that that's the case. I think if you go up against Putin, you have a very short life expectancy. We've seen that uh, earlier this year. We talked about all those people, those oligarchs who were mysteriously dying by falling out of eight-story windows from their hospital rooms while they were attached to ventilators or, or other equipment. So I don't think he's really challenging Putin at this point. I think he is just trying to wake people up to the disastrous military leadership of the Russian army. Well, I'd like to switch the conversation in a different direction right now as we finish out this interview. A story came across about the United Nations, the supranational organization that we keep tabs on. And there's a story that comes out, a United Nations certified quote-unquote expert on sexual orientation and gender identity declared Wednesday that religious communities must yield to the demands of LGBT persons to avoid charges of violence and discrimination. This is the type of overreach you could expect from the United Nations, but increasingly, Rick, you can expect it in your hometown in the United States from activist groups in your hometown. We have been seeing this in where I live in conservative areas. And here is what these so these activists, in this case, the so-called independent expert to the UN Human Rights Council saying, they always try to couple the notion of discrimination against LGBTQX people with violence. So if you're discriminating, it must therefore be violent. So you have to stop violent discrimination. To raise this to the level where the Catholic Church, Protestant churches, Islamic uh, mosques, Jewish temples, other institutions must themselves change their standards and their uh, creeds and their ways of looking at the world to uh, kowtow to some social group of misfits is quite extraordinary, I think. You know, the Old Testament is full of times. There are kings in Second Chronicles who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were dancing around the Asherah pole. They were Baal worshippers. So this, there's nothing new about this kind of perversion. But there's also, Rick, nothing new about what the Lord tells us about truth. The Lord tells us what truth is. He tells us to follow truth, to love the truth. And the truth is very simple. Uh, you were born a male or a female, period. When you die, no matter how many sex change operations you have had, if you were born with two X chromosomes, you will die with two X chromosomes as a female. Similarly, if you were born with an X and Y chromosome, you will die the same way, no matter how many times you've had your sex change. They want to become like gods. They believe that they can control biology and become like gods, assume the power of gods, and this is why they are attacking religion. They're attacking traditional religions because the traditional religions, obviously, are trying to enforce a moral standard. They're trying to enforce absolute truth. And these people uh, who are, by the way, not just in the LGBT community, they are also in the left of the United States. They want to destroy our traditional values and our uh, traditional culture. And this is the way that they do it. Okay. And we always appreciate you being on the program with us. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick, and God bless. Great stuff, Ken. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, you see all the items that indicate that we're living in the last days. Let's take a break. We'll come back with David Dolan in our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Afghanistan is turning into a hotbed of Islamic terrorism under Taliban rule. The United Nations warns against a security vacuum, saying al-Qaeda and Islamic State K are growing in numbers and capacity. Despite the dangers, believers choose to stay and maintain a witness for Christ. Todd Nettleton represents the Voice of the Martyrs USA. There are still Christians in Afghanistan. I think that's the good news for people to understand. Yes, many Christians had to flee when the Taliban was taking over because they knew their lives were at risk. But that doesn't mean all the Christians left Afghanistan. Pray that Afghan Christians can persevere through opposition and persecution. Afghanistan is a very communal culture, so it's hard to be under the radar. They have to be very cautious and very careful, but they are sharing the gospel. They are being bold, and it's really kind of amazing. And when you hear theological education, what comes to mind? You might think of stuffy lecture halls, hours of book work, or prestigious seminaries. PTEE, the Program for Theological Education by Extension, is spearheading a new approach to training. A believer will call Ben says, M-learning is learning on the mobile phone, and it can't be done in the same way as our regular online learning courses. Mobile courses are best suited for new believers. These discipleship level courses can be used to grow spiritually, but also to grow them in service. You can help Christians throughout the Middle East and North Africa become strong leaders. To learn how, connect with PTEE through our website. We have a goal of developing 20 M-learning courses overall. We are kind of pioneering this. Our big hope is that Our work will also enable others in the region to put their theological education onto mobile devices as well. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and this week joining us, as he always does, is Dave Dolan. He's an author and journalist who lived 30 years in the Middle East. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's always good to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we'll start off the program, and again, we focus on the Middle East in this Middle East News Update, but on Israel in particular, and we'll start there. We look at the situation. There has been another heartbreaking terrorist attack in Israel. Could you give us the details? Well, Rick, it's been a very active year, actually, so far this year, and we're not even at the end of the first half. We've had more attacks than all of last year, terror attacks and incidents. It actually all got to go back to Sunday when the cabinet met and they approved the earlier announced decision to build 4,500 plus units. These aren't uh, new towns or buildings, but units, mostly apartments, in Judea and Samaria. The next day, the army was sent up to Janine, where we have, as we've been talking about, two terror cells uh, planted deeply, the Hamas group and the Islamic Jihad group, also fighters associated with the PA, the ruling body. And the uh, military went in to arrest some wanted suspects. Apparently, that was anticipated because a very large roadside bomb had been had been planted near where they were expected to come in, which indeed is where they came in. It exploded. It wounded uh, eight soldiers, several seriously, mostly lightly. It destroyed the um, uh, armored personnel carrier that was uh, near it, and it uh, ruined some other vehicles. And the um, 
Army for the first time sent an Air Force helicopter, first time in many years, I should say. This happened during the second uprising, but another sign that we're in a third uprising, really, Rick, I would say. They sent that in to extricate the troops, but they were trapped in Janine for about six hours, and there was heavy firefights going on. A number of Palestinians were killed. Six, they said, the PA said. So this is a serious situation, and of course, there were other incidents. There was a drone for the first time again since the second uprising. An Israeli drone struck a car just north of Janine that was uh, aiming to attack an army outpost. They had, there were three terrorists in the car, all heavily armed. They were known to the Israelis, and um, they went in and blasted it out of the sky, basically from the sky, and they were all killed. The Prime Minister said these sorts of activities will continue, the military will step up its actions, but it all comes as there are calls for greater and greater countermeasures from the army, and this especially after Tuesday, the next day, Tuesday's terror attack that you mentioned at a falafel restaurant and a gas station, the restaurant was part of the gas station, uh, near the large Israeli settlement of uh, Eli, which is uh, very close to Ariel, one of the biggest in Judea and Samaria, and very close to other uh, well-known um, communities. And they were civilians who were killed. Uh, one was just getting gas. He was from central Israel. He wasn't a, quote, settler. The other three did live in the area. They were two 17-year-old boys that were uh, religious Jews attending a Orthodox seminary in the area. They were all shot dead in the restaurant. And then the two terrorists, one of them was shot dead by an armed civilian who was also getting gas. While that was going on, the second one stole a car that was getting gas that was running, but the owner was outside. And he escaped, but they caught him several hours later. So uh, four more Israeli civilians killed, um, 24 people dead this year alone, most of them Israelis and others, Ukrainian workers in Israel, 132 Palestinians killed so far, most of those armed fighters. So it's definitely stepping up and looking more and more, as I said, like a third uprising. But unlike the first two, it's not mass protests and teenagers throwing rocks. It's armed gunmen under the thumb of Iran, under the orders of Iran, that apparently is trying to bring the region to an, another major explosion. Well, David, as we look at this situation, you and I both know, and you've lived in Israel for quite some time, that Israel takes extraordinary security measures. And you mentioned just in this report that you feel like this is a major uprising. Do you feel like it would be even worse if it wasn't for those security measures? Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the military is on full alert. Uh, three battalions were rushed Extra battalions were rushed into the area by uh, the security cabinet. Prime Minister Netanyahu met with uh, the chiefs of the Army and Air Force and even the Navy. The Navy's not involved in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, but there were calls from many government ministers and even some opposition leaders said they would support a new military action against Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip because, of course, that's where they're headquartered. They also have 
as we've said, have forces in South Lebanon, in Syria, etc. So we could see something on a much larger scale. And basically, the settlers are saying, the Israeli residents of Judea and Samaria, we've had enough, that's it. And I have to mention that a number of them went on a rampage in several Arab villages near Eli on Tuesday night, soon after the terror attack. And then again on Wednesday and on Thursday night, uh, Rick, there were more clashes. The army was trying to intervene and separate the two sides. But these are uh, Israeli civilians for the most part that say they're just fed up, they're sick and tired of this, and that if you come and hit our restaurants, hit our gas stations, hit our civilians, then your civilians will be targeted as well. Of course, the State Department strongly condemned that. Jordan did, Egypt did, and other voices did. But it's a very, very serious situation, a very explosive situation. And again, it seems like Iran is pushing the envelope here and trying to get as much trouble stirred up as they can. And uh, if that's their intention, well, uh, they're succeeding. Well, David, another uh, story that is taking place in Israel right now is an uprising among the Druze, mainly in the Golan Heights. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, Israel announced some months ago that it would put some wind turbines up on the Golan Heights near these Druze villages in the northern end of the Golan Heights. And uh, that was met immediately by major protests. We don't want those unsightly things in our area. As you know from being up there, it's called the Golan Heights. It is a high ground. It has wind all the time. So it's a perfect place to have those turbines. And then it was announced this week that it was definitely going forward by the government. And there were riots, basically. And the police had to come in. They blockaded roads around several Druze villages. Now, the Druze are Israeli citizens. And Druze young men, many of them serve in the IDF. So this is kind of an internal situation, but just another headache that uh, the government's dealing with. And uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, said we won't uh, allow our people in Judea and Samaria to take the law into their own hands against the Palestinians. And we won't allow you, Druze, in the Golan Heights to do the same. So it's just another aspect of everything that's going on. I'd like to take a look at this situation from a different perspective, and we've talked on this program quite a bit about the Abraham Accords, and this can't be good for the Abraham Accords because it makes it tough for these Arab countries to negotiate with Israel, doesn't it? Well, it definitely does. And a concrete sign of that, Rick, was that Morocco, that is one of the four Arab countries that signed a, a peace accord, basically peace accord with Israel in 2020 under the Trump administration, they were supposed to host a meeting of foreign ministers again in the Negev desert in Israel. Uh, Anthony Blinken and the foreign ministers of the four Arab countries and some others would would be there. And this took place in March of last year, the first uh, Negev summit. And that was supposed to be coming up. But Morocco said, no, we're not doing it now until this situation is resolved with the Palestinians and the Israelis, and as long as this violence is escalating and all this sort of thing, we can't be sitting at a table with you. And so obviously that doesn't exactly encourage others. Saudi Arabia, we know there were 25 Congress people that 
announced, uh, sent a letter on June 1st, actually, to Blinken saying, we'd like to see you promote the Abraham Accords more strongly, especially we'd like to see Saudi Arabia brought in. And they said this was mainly to counter the Chinese. Their Belt and Road Initiative all over Africa in particular um, is having a great impact, a great effect. And uh, they said, let's let's let our ally Israel uh, make peace with uh, some of these other countries that they don't have relations with, and there's over a dozen in that category. But again, it's not looking that great after this going on, and Iran knows it can stir up the pot. And meanwhile, it's been uh, strengthening its ties with some of these Abraham Accord countries, including uh, Bahrain and the UAE. An Israeli official visited Bahrain this week and said, we're not real happy about this, but again, it's your decision. But uh, it just shows that I would say the uh, Abraham process is stalled at best, just as the Palestinian-Israeli, quote, peace process is basically dead. Well, David, we'll continue to monitor these two situations. They are situations with prophetic implications for sure. And we look at uh, what's going on with the Palestinian people as well as peace with Israel's neighbors in the Middle East. Well, we thank you so much for your contribution to our Middle East News Update, keeping us informed on what is taking place in the Middle East. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. I do too, Rick. God bless. Thank you, David. We do keep our eyes on the Middle East, and there are lots of implications of things that are taking place there in the land of Israel. Well, I'm really excited about our next interview coming up right after the break. Dr. Andy Woods right here giving us a full half hour. Folks, you don't want to miss this. We'll be right back right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, the one thing that I appreciate from understanding and being taught Bible prophecy, studying God's word, is that we have a basic layout of Bible prophecy so that we know when we're looking at these events that we're studying, uh, they're leading up to events that take place after, and if you look at it in the book of Revelation, after Revelation 4, verse 1. Because Revelation 4, verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And, you know, after all the time we spend in seminary and things like this, it's really very simple. Everything in Revelation after chapter 4, verse 1, pertains to the things that are going to take place after the rapture of the church. And that really helps us as we look at these events, correct? 
It does. It gives us a timeline. We have that timeline. And when we see things that are taking place in the world that seem to be setting the stage for those events after Revelation 4, it certainly seems like the time for the rapture is very near. Yes. We have Dr. Andy Woods, and I'm looking forward to spending some in-depth time. So let's get started with our interview with Dr. Andy Woods. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Dr. Andy Woods with us. He is formerly a professor of Bible and theology at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston, and he now serves as the president of Schaefer Theological Seminary and senior pastor of Sugarland Bible Church. Dr. Woods, thank you for being with us today. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Woods, before we get started here, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about your Pastor's Point of View program that you have. This is a program that I have been listening to, and you've got some great material and information. And much of what I wanted to talk to you about today uh, was from information that I heard on that program. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people could listen to it if they would like to? Yeah, I mean, we started that about 2016 to deal with prophecy issues and cultural issues that you don't normally have a chance as a pastor to address from the pulpit. And so that's why we started that. And once all the shutdowns and mandates and everything started happening around 2020, you know, it became almost exclusively a prophecy update where we were trying to take things in the news, much like your ministry does, and show show people, you know, how the stage is being set for a scenario that the Bible predicts in its prophetic pages. And so if people just go to Andy Woods Ministries, either on YouTube or Rumble, or they go to andywoodsministries.org on the website, you can find all of our pastor's point of view shows. If people like podcasts, we have it in podcast format. Just type in Andy Woods Ministries into your podcast search engine and our stuff you know, will show up. So there's a lot of different ways to get the weekly, basically a weekly one hour show if people are interested. Well, it certainly is a good source for people to look at things. And and, and of course, the last time you were on this program, you talked about we don't necessarily advocate a newspaper reading of Bible prophecy, but God's Word has given us the gift of Bible prophecy, and one-third or 25% to one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. So God has given us this information. He's given it to us for a reason. So uh, we are not necessarily uh, sensationalizing things, but Dr. Woods, we are looking at these. uh, God has given us these signs to let us know where we are in history, right? Right. I mean, we don't really approach prophecy from the standpoint of you know, the prophecies in the book of Revelation are happening, you know, right now. This, you know, the sea isn't being turned to blood bread and that kind of thing. But um, we don't think prophecy can be fulfilled in a vacuum. You know, the stage has to be mm-hmm. set. And that becomes obvious when you look at the first coming. You know, the stage was set properly for the first coming of Christ. Uh, Israel was in her land again. Uh, They were yearning for a Messiah of some kind. Um, The Romans had come to power and popularized uh, the instrument of death called crucifixion. So the right, uh, you know, instrument was in place for the Messiah to be pierced. Uh, The Greek language about three centuries earlier had come on the scene and So the right language, a very deep language, was in place to record the New Testament once Jesus showed up. You know, you have uh, Roman power over Israel, so you had universal Roman roads and Roman peace. 
so the gospel could be spread once Jesus, you know, had died on the cross and risen from the dead and ascended back to the Father's right hand. So, you know, as you look at that time period, clearly the stage is being set. And our point is if the stage can be set for the first coming of Christ, why can't it be set for the second coming of Christ? And as you look at our world today, you know, very clearly the stage is being set exactly for the scenario God says will come to pass in the last days. So the the angle of stage setting is is really the uh, vantage point that we come from. Well, of course, as many people who listen to this program, they know that's where we come from as well. Well, let's talk about a few things that I have heard you speaking about in your updates that you have put online. Uh, One of them, we focus on the temple. Now, we focus on the temple because there will be a temple standing there during the tribulation, which is after the rapture of the church. And this is one of the things where it helps us to pinpoint where we are in history. But if we look at this, you talked about an Israeli minister proposing dividing the Temple Mount between Jews and Muslims. Can you tell us about that story just a little bit? It's kind of interesting. Almost every time you look at the headlines today, there's something about the temple. And as as some have articulated it, when the discussion of the world moves to Israel, you know, God's hand in terms of his stopwatch is on the hour hand. And then when it leaves Israel and it gets more specific into Jerusalem, now you're dealing with the minute hand. Mm-hmm. And then when the discussion of the world moves to the temple mount, now we're dealing with the second hand. So that's why I find mm-hmm. any story about the temple of interest. And this one is very interesting because it deals with a Knesset um, member. And keep in mind, this is not yet a law, but my point is it's in the discussion. I mean, people are thinking about this. And as, as you well know, the Jews, of course, after the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, gave control of that area back to the Muslims under, remember, Moshe Diane did that. And this particular Knesset member is basically saying, yeah, it's time to take that area back. It belongs to the Jews. Um, Let's remove Jordanian control over the Temple Mount and area, which will give the Jews, you know, unlimited access to go up there for religious purposes. Right now, they're only allowed up there uh, on a very limited basis. And it basically says the Muslims can have the Al-Aqsa uh, area and the Jews will take control of the Dome of the Rock, which, according to basic tradition and history, I know there's some debate on it, but that's where the temple, Solomonic Temple, once stood. And so it's just fascinating that you read this kind of public proposal, not by a crazy person, but by an actual Knesset member. And um, it's paving the way, I believe, for ultimately Israel to rebuild Temple Number 3, which, as you said before, has to be standing midway through the tribulation period. So the fact that this is even being publicly proposed and discussed shows us that the stage is being set for the seven-year tribulation period. And it's just another sign that we can look at to see where we are on God's um, prophetic calendar and stopwatch. I love the way you put it there, that when you talk about the Temple Mount, that's the second hand, and that is so close to uh, where we can look and see what God has planned for the end times. Well, uh, another controversial story I'd like to talk to you about involving the Temple Mount, and Winky Madad, he's a 
Orthodox Jewish person that often is a broadcast partner on our program, and he talked a little bit last week about Paula White, and now she's a person that our ministry would probably, well, would certainly have some doctrinal differences with, but she's an evangelical leader. It is said that she has former president and maybe future president Trump's ear when it comes to the Christian world movement. She went to the Temple Mount. Now, I appreciate her putting an emphasis on the Temple Mount and what it means to the Jewish people. But she said something that was very concerning. I'd love to hear your thought on this. She said that Christians must learn from the Jews and not convert them. And I believe that when we look at that, that's a very concerning attitude to have. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, if we're not supposed to be converting the Jews, I don't really know what Paul was doing in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you go from... Uh, chapter to chapter in the book of Acts, and you look at Paul's missionary journeys, I mean, he always went to the temple, excuse me, the synagogue first, and he would, like in Acts 17, 2 and 3, you know, reason from the scriptures concerning the Jews and how Jesus or Yeshua is the fulfillment of Hebrew Bible. So I, I don't think Paul was trying to talk them out of being Jews, but I think what he was trying to do was to show them that all of Judaism, all of Hebrew Bible, all of what we call Old Testament, sometimes it's called Tanakh, points to the person of Jesus Christ. And so if that's what she means by not converting the Jews, I think she's going against what Paul was doing. And so I'm a little bit also like you, troubled by the statement that we shouldn't try to convert the Jews. Well, and this is one of the things, even though we understand and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for the people of Israel, we realize that God has a plan for the Jewish people, and he will fulfill the promises he made to the Jewish people. But, uh, Pastor, when we talk about this situation, let's be very clear, there is only one way to a relationship with God right now, and it is through Jesus Christ, correct? Right. And unfortunately, they're developed, um, and I think you pronounce this in German as Sonderweg. I think it means special way. And it's sort of a reaction to the Holocaust, you know, that we really feel sorry for Israel and the Jewish people for what they went through in the Holocaust. And we're going to overreact against that by basically telling the Jews that they're saved through their own individual covenant with God regardless of what they do with the person of Jesus Christ. And that's called, you know, Zonderbeg's special way. And we basically believe that's heretical because Jesus is very clear. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm all for showing sympathy to Israel based on what she's experienced in the Holocaust. But to me, hiding the, the Savior from them is the ultimate form of anti-Semitism. And, you know, if they can be saved through their own special way without Jesus, then Jesus, according to Galatians 2, verse 21, died for no reason. And so, yes, let's be pro-Israel, but let's not go crazy with it and say, you know, they're, they're saved their own way without Jesus Christ. I mean, to believe that is really to go back to an ancient heresy called, you know, dual covenant salvation. Pastor, what an excellent explanation, and I appreciate you making that clear. I want to be 
sure that we at Prophecy Today and Dr. Woods makes no bones to the fact that there is one way of salvation right now, but of course we do believe that God has a plan for Israel. Well, let's continue on, and there were some other stories that I was really interested in listening to. One of them, you talked about a prophecy from Leviticus 26, 43, and it says, the land also should be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. Uh, Can you explain why this prophecy was important, how it was fulfilled, and what it means for Israel uh, and kind of the creation of the state of Israel, but what it means in that uh, context? Yeah, this is a fascinating prophecy. I'm glad you're asking me about that because you almost never hear this referred to by any major prophecy teachers that I'm aware of. But when you actually read this, it indicates that God has designed the land of Israel to not uh, financially, economically, or agriculturally prosper while the nation of Israel is outside the land. Mm. It's only designed to prosper when the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, are in the land of Israel. And so that's um, exactly what has happened. Mark Twain, you know, as you know, went to that part of the world and uh, oh, around uh, 1876, right in there, and took a tour of the land of Israel. He wrote about it a couple years later in his book, Innocence Abroad. And he says, you know, there's nothing here but a barren expanse and a wasteland. And and look at Israel. And that, that was when Israel was outside the land. Well, look at them post-1948 as they're in the land. Look at their GDP and how it outstrips that of their neighbors. In fact, this economically prosperous Israel is, I think, the major reason given by the prophet Ezekiel in terms of why the Gog-Magog invasion is going to happen. When you look at Ezekiel 38, verse 12 and verse 13, it's clear that these nations, Iran, Turkey, Russia, etc., are coming after Israel's wealth. And that's an outworking of Leviticus 26, that God says when Israel is outside the land, the land will be desolate. Mark Twain testifies to that. But when Israel is back in the land, she will become phenomenally wealthy. And so when you see a wealthy Israel, which is what's happening before our eyes, not just an Israel in the land, but actually getting the upper hand economically, That's an outworking of what God said in Leviticus 26, and it's largely preparatory, you know, for the Gog-Magog invasion that we frequently talk about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Pastor Woods, this certainly looks like you could see the exact hand of God, and when you look at what took place and you talk about Israel being dispersed in AD 70 and the land basically being a desolate land even up until the 19th century like you said Mark Twain visited and said it was a desolate land and full of poverty and dirt and then you look at what happened in 1948 and we've talked about it on this program Israel making the country bloom the land uh, is growing you look at the gross domestic product is one thing you talked about I mean they're leaders in innovation and now even they have liquid natural gas, a discovery that is making them a world player on the energy scene. So these riches that have abounded to Israel is prophecy being fulfilled, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really a combination of things that you mentioned. You have their GDP, 
you have their agricultural prosperity. In fact, there's even a book on my shelf called Startup Nation, documenting all mm. of the different technological gizmos that we're all you know, dependent on today that have come from the land of Israel. You look at their per capita of millionaires. You look at, as you mentioned before, natural gas discoveries. You look at potential oil discoveries. You look at potential gold discoveries. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, you know, with all of those categories. But when you see all these things on the headlines, people have to understand that this is what God said would happen. And that must mean that the Gog-Magog invasion uh, is is descending on us very, very rapidly. Well, you talk about the Gog-Magog invasion, and this is very interesting as well. And you brought this up, and I, I won't keep you here all day, Pastor Woods, but I got a few more items to discuss. But when you look at the Gog-Magog invasion, you look at the nation of Russia and then Iran that is going to be involved in that, and China, and you look at these major players in the end times, and these are probably the three major players in the end times. They are certainly becoming prominent players in the world today, which is setting the stage for the future, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think Rosh is Russia. I think Persia is Iran. And a lot of people, they don't see China in Bible prophecy, but I, I do because it talks there in Revelation 9 and Revelation 16 of this massive army, you know, coming from the Far East into the Middle East. And as that army is moving, the Euphrates River, which is the really the, the geographical marker separating the Middle East from the Far East, is supernaturally dried up. And, you know, I, I quoted uh, John Walbert's commentary and others that indicate this very well could be China. So you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got China, all positioned perfectly with a hostile intent towards Israel. And if that weren't enough, Russia. Iran and China are always getting together to cooperate with each other economically, uh, militarily. In some cases, they're holding uh, joint military exercises together. And so it's not just the positioning of these different hostile powers towards Israel, it's their cooperation. And I'm of the persuasion that these nations won't invade Israel until they're in a state of cooperation with each other. Their state of cooperation allows them to, to form a conspiracy against Israel. You can't conspire with someone unless you're in some kind of relationship with them. And so the fact that all of these political powers and economic powers are now on the world scene cooperating with each other in every way imaginable is just yet another example of the stage setting that we are seeing every single day in preparation for the scenario that God describes in his word. Pastor Woods, we talk about this, and I'll move through these quickly, but last time we had you on the program, we talked about your book, Babylon, The Bookends of Prophetic History, and you talk about a literal Babylon that has a role to play in God's end-time scenario, and there's now new developments talking about the rebuilding of Babylon, isn't there? Uh, uh, constantly, there are new developments. There's a, a port that they're seeking to build in that area, which is going to you know, economically connect a lot of different powers in that area. And the trading route is going to go right through Iraq, right through the city of Babylon, which will make Babylon phenomenally wealthy. You can talk about the fact that they are building city complexes 
to the tune of billions of dollars. The figure I saw was $7.7 billion. And they're, of course, wanting to locate these city areas that they're building. In the city of Babylon, you look at Iraq. Uh, Babylon, of course, is in modern-day Iraq between the Euphrates and the Tigris. And how Iraq is OPEC's number two oil producer. And you just look at fact after fact after fact, and you can see exactly what God said in his word, Revelation 18, that Babylon will be catapulted to a position of world prominence and has a major role to play in the end time scenario as well. One last question before I get you to wrap all this up for us, Dr. Woods. Globalism. This is something that we know uh, in the end times there will be a one world religion, a one world government, and globalism seems to be trending in this world today. Can you talk to us just a little bit about that? Well, I remember when George uh, Herbert Walker Bush back in the 90s used the expression the new world order. And there was such an outcry against that, that I think after using the term a couple times, he quit using it. But today, that was back in the 90s, today it's almost like politicians can't, can't even get through a speech, you know, Republican or Democrat, without some sort of reference to globalism or the new world order. Um, and so globalism is here to stay. It's not going away anytime soon. Uh, I would argue that the the Trump political ascendancy is sort of a reaction against globalism because a lot of people feel like in this push for globalism, our own country, you know, has sort of, um, you know, gotten the shaft, so to speak. So, you know, even the fact that our borders are wide open, uh, you can just look at issue after issue after issue, and it relates to the idea that People want the United States and other countries to sort of acquiesce to some kind of transnational or supranational global authority. And that, too, along with all of the other signs that we've discussed in this program, is also an outworking of Bible prophecy because the Bible clearly predicts that before Jesus returns in his second advent, a one world government will exist over planet Earth. You can see it in a lot of different prophecies, such as Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses uh, 16 through 18, and countless other passages we could speak of. But every time you see globalism in the headlines, in harmony, in confluence, um, in concert, with all of these other signs we've talked about, Israel's wealth, uh, the temple and the temple mount, uh, Babylon, when you see all of these things coming together simultaneously, it shows us that the tribulation period can't be very far away. And so that's this is what we mean by prophetic uh, uh, stage setting and looking for the signs of the times. Well, that's the perfect intro into my final question then for you, Dr. Woods. You look at all of these things taking place. Now, if we look at if we looked at one issue in general, you know, this could be kind of a, maybe a one-off or but if you take all of these events, you combine them all together, you certainly see a scenario where it looks like we are heading into the next level the next stage that's going to take place. And that stage, of course, is the tribulation period. But before that, as you and I believe, Dr. Woods, the rapture of the church must take place. So when we get all of this information, we take it all in together that God has provided for us with his gift of Bible prophecy. 
in Scripture, how then should this motivate us to live, Dr. Woods? Well, as the old saying goes, you know, when you see the signs for Christmas, you know, like Santa Claus and the department store and Christmas music on the radio and people putting up Christmas trees and Christmas lights outside and inside their home, then it tells you that Thanksgiving is very near. <laughs> because Thanksgiving, as we know, occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. And that that's the way to understand all of these signs. It shows us that the rapture of the church is even more imminent if the signs of the tribulation period are approaching. Because as you rightly pointed out, the rapture of the church precedes the seven-year tribulation period. And once you start to understand that, you start to understand the urgency of the hour. You know, we need to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, or they're going to be left behind and face these horrors of the seven-year tribulation period. And it also helps us prioritize our lives as Christians, because we don't want to spend our waning hours on the earth involved in trivial pursuit. You know, we want to have our lives focused in the things that are going to matter and, and for eternity and are, and are going to stand the test of time, things related to the Bible, the church, you know, scripture, evangelism, spiritual disciplines, the, our prayer life, our times of uh, scriptural meditation, you know, supporting the work of our local churches, using our spiritual gifts. I mean, we start to use those things and do those things more when we understand the urgency of the hour. And yet you really can't understand the urgency of the hour unless you see these signs that we've been speaking of. Well, Dr. Woods, excellent exhortation. We appreciate you being on the program. You're a great friend to our ministry, and we appreciate the ministry that you have. Again, if you could, just let us know how we could follow your ministry. I'm easy to follow. Just uh, look look me up online, andywoodsministries.org. You can find our website. You can find our app in the App Store. Just look for Andy Woods Ministries. We're also in podcast format. Just type in Andy Woods Ministries into your podcast uh, search engine. And if you're interested in other things that we're doing in terms of teaching at our local church, just go to Sugarland Bible Church. That's www.slbc.org. Pastor Woods, as always, thanks for being with us, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Great privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Andy Woods. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Man, I like what uh, Dr. Wood said, Rick, and folks, you might want to go back and listen, re-listen to this interview. There's a lot of meat in it, Rick. How can they do that? Well, Jimmy, you can go to our website at prophecytoday.com. We put the entire program up on our website for you to listen to, and we do that. And we keep it archived for you. If you miss parts of it, when it airs on the radio, you can come back and listen to it, or you can also listen to it on podcast. But Jimmy, and while we're talking about the website, let me just say that the website, this radio program, these things are listener supported. Your prayers and your financial support keep this ministry going and we appreciate that. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider donating to Prophecy Today. Yes, Rick, I appreciate that. And folks, thank you for your prayers and for considering 
donating to our ministry. That would really help us out. Well, today on the Legacy Series, we're going to continue our study on God's plan through the ages. Last time we concluded our study with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, we concluded in the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis, which is where we see the record of God giving Abraham a promise that he would father the Jewish nation. This is known as the Abrahamic Covenant, and it's one of the four covenants that God has given to the Jewish people. These are unconditional promises that God made to his chosen people. Also in today's study, we'll continue to trace through the history of the Jewish people through their 400 years of bondage in Egypt, which, by the way, was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Today, we're going to continue our study in Genesis chapter 15 with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Go back to chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. God is going to give Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people in essence, four covenants that are key to understanding God's plan in this age and past ages and future ages for the Jewish people, which is a part of his entire plan. We cannot set the Jews aside. We set the Jews aside. We negate the truths of God's word about our salvation. We cannot set the Jews aside. The Abrahamic covenant is the first of the covenants. And notice what he says here. Uh, and, and throughout the entire chapter of, of, of 15, and I don't have time to go into the blood covenant that was given here, uh, three animals were split asunder, and then there were birds around, and the Lord is supposed to take the arm of Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, because there's one member of the Godhead you're not allowed to see. That's God the Father. There's another member you can't see because he's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There's only one member of the Godhead you can see, and that's Jesus Christ. And throughout the entire Old Testament, I can show you time after time, almost page after page, the person of Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance with many of them. El Shaddai. If you've ever heard the name of God, El Shaddai, that's Jesus Christ throughout the entire uh, Old Testament. But he appears unto him. He gives the Abrahamic covenant to him, a blood covenant. Both parties are supposed to walk between the animals that have been split asunder. Both of them to say, if I break this covenant, you can split me in two just like these animals. The Lord puts Abraham to sleep. He walks by himself, making it an unconditional covenant. That means the Lord, no matter what Abraham, no matter what the Jews do, has to fulfill this covenant. He gives him a piece of real estate, verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. This is going to guarantee. The land is going to guarantee they are a nation. You'll notice the name Euphrates River in here. Well, it's extending, and if you're really able to study all 38 chapters of the Bible that deal with the, the biblical borders of Israel, you would see that the land that God has promised to give them, they have only 10% now, what he's promised to give them in this Abrahamic covenant, confirmed by the land covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 30, starts at the Nile River in Egypt, extends north through the Sinai Desert, north through Israel, north through all of Lebanon to the Euphrates River, makes a southeastern turn coming down, taking in all of Jordan, all of Syria, three-quarters of Iraq, all of Kuwait, and then three-quarters of Saudi Arabia. That's biblically what God has given the Jewish people. They won't have it to the kingdom, period, but this is the promise. It's established in the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 30, the land covenant. 
Though in chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to cast you out of the land. I'm going to cast you to the four corners of the earth because you're going to be disobedient to me. Now, if you were obedient to me, I will make you the chief of all nations. But if you're disobedient, and we know they were disobedient, 70 AD, they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. When General Titus returned, he's the one that scattered them to the four corners of the earth. His father was the Roman emperor at the time, Vespasian. When he returned to Rome, guess what he was welcomed with? The Arch of Titus. His father built an arch by which Titus could march through into the capital city of the Roman Empire. On that Arch of Titus, they have reliefs with the Roman soldiers bringing back the menorah, bringing back the silver trumpet from the temple, bringing back many items. But that Arch of Titus is a tangible evidence. If you've ever been to Rome, you can touch tangible evidence of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. God did this, but he then said two chapters later, I'm going to give you the land. I promise to give you the land. I'm getting your attention. I'm discipling you to understand what I say is what you're going to have to do, and I'm going to discipline you. And so he's made a promise. He has to deal with these people. He not only made the promise to Abraham, go to the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis, verse 2. 26th chapter of Genesis 2. And the Lord appeared unto him, and he said, Go not down unto Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and I will bless thee, for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham your father. He now passes the heritage and the covenant along to Isaac. Go to the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. Look here in verse 12. He's speaking now to Jacob, grandson of Abraham. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee, I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. This is an eternal promise. It's an eternal fulfilled promise that has to take place. Our God is not God. He made the promise. He has to abide by the promise. Deuteronomy 30, again, I told you, is the land covenant. And there are other covenants we'll talk about in just a moment. I want you to know what happens now with the Jewish people. They're established. They're in the land. Uh, We know as modern-day Israel, at that time it was Canaan. And I want to tell you that they're going to be removed out of that land. Just for a moment, back to chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. When God is giving Abraham uh, that Abrahamic covenant, he also says something else, which is, I believe, solid, tangible evidence that what he said about the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. Because when we see prophecy fulfilled, that gives us the assurance that indeed prophecy yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Look here what he tells him, verse 13, chapter 15. And he said unto Abram, know for a surety, this is an absolute, God is saying, know for a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years. They're going to be out of the land, strangers in the land, for 400 years. He gives the Abrahamic covenant. He promises they'll be a nation, have a land forever. But he says, you're going to go out of this land. You're going to be a stranger in the land for 400 years. Now go to chapter 46 of the book of Genesis. Chapter 46 of the book of Genesis tells us how this all comes about. And, and I'm not going to fill in all the details on the skeleton of this timeline walking through 
the Old Testament with the people of God, the Jewish people, the second strand of the human family. This is the second 2,000 years. This is from Abraham to the apostles. Look here in chapter 46 and verse 6. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt. Notice how many went. Verse 27. And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls. And all the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. Jacob has 70 members of his family. These 70 members of the family are going to be taken by their family leader, Jacob, into the land of Egypt. They're going to have a sojourn there for 400 years, fulfilling the prophecy of Jacob's grandfather. And so now Jacob is going to have greater assurance that what God's word said about there being a nation in a piece of real estate forever was going to indeed happen. Uh, The book of Exodus now gives us the return after that 400 years. Go to chapter 12. In chapter 12, God raises up a man named Moses. Moses is going to be a great Jewish prophet, but in addition to that, a great Jewish leader. He didn't want to be that, but the Lord said he is going to make him one. In fact, he had to send him out in the backside of the desert for a number of years before he could actually get him to come in and do what he told him to do. He gives him a time of uh, competing with the Pharaoh's leaders and all of those things, and you know the ten plagues, etc., etc. But chapter 12 gives us the information about the Exodus. It's been 400 years that they have been out of the land of Israel. God raises up Moses. He puts in place the Passover. Uh, the last plague is going to come upon the Jewish people, excuse me, the Egyptian people, is going to be the death of the firstborn. If they don't take the blood of a lamb, a unblemished, perfect lamb, and take that blood, a piece of hyssop, dipping it into a bowl of blood and painting their doorpost, so that when the death angel comes, he will pass over. And that's what the Jewish people do. And they're to stand, they're to make unleavened bread. And the purpose for the unleavened bread, which will be the second of the Jewish feast, Passover, then unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, you make it in about 17 minutes. You have no yeast in it. It's a piece of flat bread. And they had been eating sourdough bread up until this time. Unleavened doesn't necessarily mean sin. It means separation. And so what the Lord was doing, you're going to eat unleavened bread for a seven-day period of time. The Passover takes place. You eat unleavened bread with that Passover lamb for a seven-day period of time. I'm separating you from the bondage and eating sourdough bread, giving you a separation. I'll send you out towards the promised land. You'll start then eating sourdough bread again. But for these seven days, I want you to think about what I'm doing here. I'm separating you. You want to see something very interesting? Have you got chapter 12? Look over here in verse uh, 37. Notice how many people come back into the land. And the children of Israel journeyed uh, in the wilderness, and about 600,000 on foot were men beside the children and the women. Seventy people went out with Jacob. 600,000 men come out of the bondage plus the women and the children. Now, if you have 600,000 men, you probably have maybe 600,000 women. That's a million two. And if you have 600,000 men, 600,000 women, how many kids could you have? I'm saying it's at least 2 million. 70. Now a nation comes into existence. 2 million come out. 
You know how many is going to go in the promised land? 137,000. Well, I'm sorry, it's 136,893 to be exact. 137,000. Everybody else dies off. Why? They didn't believe. Only those who had been born while traveling in the 40 years in the wilderness, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two out of the original that came out, two million, who go into the promised land because they obeyed God and believed what he said. Everybody else is going to come in that's born in that water and wilderness. You know how many people that would be dying a day and being buried? You can do the number. 69 people a day died in the wilderness and they had to bury them. And 137,000 come into the promised land. That's Joshua. Joshua's chapters 3 to 6. This is key. You've got to understand God has a plan for the Jewish people. God does indeed have a plan for the Jewish people. Down through the last 4,000 years, we've seen that plan unfold. In fact, God is not finished with that plan. It's a plan that goes into the future as well. God's plan for the Jews is what Bible prophecy is all about. As we study God's prophetic word, we'll see how it has and will come about. In our next study, we'll continue to trace the Jewish people from Abraham to the apostles and even until today. This entire study is very important for you to understand God's plan for the future. Please join us next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book as we recap the program from today. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Six believers in Libya could soon face the death penalty for sharing their faith. Libya's constitution guarantees religious freedom to non-Muslims. However, it also defines Islam as the state religion. But the Constitution's loose wording provides space for persecution. According to the Voice of the Martyrs Canada, the six believers are still waiting for a court date. Ask God to intervene on the believer's behalf. Next, men often take several wives in rural Kenya. When the man dies, his family takes over the estate, and each wife is left to fend for herself and her children. Kenya Hope offers a two-year path to safety through its Widow's Might program. Widows receive food assistance each month, and they learn marketable job skills. 
and biblical discipleship happens along the way, too. Today, on International Widows Day, you can give a woman and her children hope for the future. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, I said earlier, Revelation 4.1 introduces a section of Scripture that details things which must be hereafter. What follows are prophecies of the end times. We have not yet reached the tribulation, the revelation of the Antichrist, or other end-time events. What we do see is a preparation for those events to take place. Jesus said that the last days would be preceded by several things. Many false Christs would come, deceiving many. We would hear of wars and rumors of wars, and there would be an increase in famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. That's Matthew chapter 24, verses 5 and 8. Today's news that we've been covering is full of false religions, warfare, natural disasters. We know that events of the tribulation period will include all that Jesus predicted. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Current events seem to build up for greater trouble ahead, don't you think? Well, I sure do, Jimmy, and we look back on the program today, and there are so many things on this program, and we do this every week. There are so many things where we look at the stage setting. Dr. Wood said it great earlier in the program. So many things that are taking place in the world today are setting the stage, but of course we have to look that these things that are going to take place take place during the tribulation period, which is after the rapture of the church, and God gave us this information. He wanted us to know what was to happen so we could have confidence so we could understand where we are in God's timeline of events. And certainly seems like we can't be very far away from the rapture of the church with all these things taking place. I love what he said. You know, um, the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, everything was prepared for Christ's first coming. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. When you look at this, everything was prepared for the first coming of Christ. Why shouldn't we expect everything that we talk about in Matthew 24, everything that's talked about after this, which is Revelation chapter 4 and after, when we talk about those things, why shouldn't we expect things to be set up in place and be ready to take place just like it was at the first coming of Christ. Well, that's right. And you look at those Old Testament prophecies, and as you say, the fullness of time, as time was prepared, and you look at the way things were prepared and set up for Christ's first appearance, and now we look at his second coming, and these things are getting set up in the exact same way, and we are getting to see these things take place right before our eyes. Uh, Another thing I liked about what Dr. Wood said is when you looking at God's stopwatch or God's plan, you know, you look at Israel, that's the hour hand. You look at Jerusalem, that's the minute hand. But you look at the Temple Mount and and what's taking place there. That's the second hand. That is where you see how close we are to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about it all this time on the program, but that's a center of controversy. And it is also where they are preparing to rebuild the Third Temple, which will stand in the tribulation period. Yes, because it makes sense. And it's so 
practical. Like, look, folks, not a, we used to look at the hour, the minute, and now we're looking at the second hand. And, uh, uh, you know, as the seconds tick by and as all these things start to come into place, we know that we are getting close to the rapture of the church because that has to happen first before any of these other events take place. That's why we focus with Ken and Dave and all of our broadcast partners, R.C. Murrell and Winky Madad and, and just all the gentlemen, Dr. Rich Schmidt, all these gentlemen that we have on here are there for you to be able to see, hey, these things are happening. Uh, I always like in, when I speak in a, 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 a conferences, Rick, I like to snap my finger, you know, like I snap my finger. And, and really, that's God. When we see these things happening, he's snapping his finger, if he could. Uh, I mean, but it's for us, it's like, hey, pay attention. When you see these things, what things? False Christ, uh, false prophets, deceiving many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, when you, when you hear of increased famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places, all of these are the beginnings of sorrow. You know, one thing um, as we look at, you know, Jesus gave that great prophecy, that first prophecy conference on the Mount of Olives. But Paul and Peter also warned us of things and what they would be in the end times or the last days. Paul warned that the last days would bring a marked increase in false teaching. You know, when you brought up that question about Paula White, after last week when you asked Winky, and Winky Madai was all excited about the Christian community getting behind, and we've been behind the rebuilding of a temple in the city of Jerusalem because we understand where it fits into Bible prophecy. There's not just going to be one more temple. There are going to be two more temples. The second temple, Jesus Christ built. That's Ezekiel's temple. But we do need to be careful because all of this stuff is not to give a special pass to the Jewish people or to anybody else in this world. We have an understanding that God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through me, Rick. And I think that's so important when we study Bible prophecy. It is to motivate us for two reasons, right? One is to help us to understand the urgency of the hour. Number two, to understand that we are to share with others God's plan of salvation for mankind, correct? That's right, Jimmy. And our study of Bible prophecy should only point towards that goal, sharing the gospel to a lost and dying world. Yes. Very well said, Rick. Very well said. You know, while there is no biblical proof that the things mentioned in our program today are about prophecy being fulfilled. We, we've been focusing on this for a long time. We can see how many of these events are similar to what the Bible describes. In any case, we are to be watching for prophecy fulfilled because Jesus told us that the day of the Lord, his return for his own, would come like a thief in the night. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Unexpected and unannounced. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Rick, our look at the book today is really about taking a, a look back at what we talked about, but it's so very important for the times in which we're living. Thanks for doing the hard work with Ken, Dave, and Dr. Andy Woods for being on the program today, Rick. Look forward to being with you next week. I look forward to it as well, Jimmy. Yes. Folks, really, with the things that we have seen, we have to say that the rapture of the church cannot be far away. 
Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.